the state of mind where suddenly you're open to thinking in a different way. I mean, I, it's funny because I, I experienced this directly when I was proposing this book. So I wrote about 10 versions of the proposal, book proposal, and my agent kept sending it back to me and saying, in her, she's not very polite actually, it's pretty blunt. <laughs> she's like, this is just, I just, it's yeah, garbage. It's like, All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Beer Got Me Here podcast. We're super excited for the guest we have this evening. We are joined today with university professor and author Edward Slingerland. Edward completed his PhD in religious studies from Stanford University and is currently a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. His research specialties include such themes as warring states, religious studies, Chinese thought ethics, the relationship between humanities and the natural sciences, and the classical Chinese language to boot. Professor Slingerland has written <laughs> <laughs> Professor Slingerland has written a handful of academic texts as well as two trade books. The first uh, written in 2014, entitled "Trying Not to Try: Ancient China." Modern Science and the Power of Spontaneity. And his most recent book, published last month in June of 2022, 2021, I'm forgetting what year it is, is entitled Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. So without further ado, we welcome Professor Slingerland to the Beer Got Me Here podcast. Hello, Professor Slingerland. Hi, thanks for having me here. No, thank you very much. So maybe we'll get things started. Can you give us maybe just a little bit of information on you and maybe your academic journey? Yeah. So how did I get from Chinese philosophy to writing about alcohol uh, is a bit puzzling. My first, my first trade book, Try Not to Try, is about this tension in early Chinese philosophy. These, these early Chinese thinkers I look at, Confucians and Taoists, want you to be in this state that is called wei in Chinese, I translate it as effortless action. So they want you to be spontaneous, they want you to be relaxed, they want you to be in the moment. And they think if you can do that, if you can pull that off, lots of good things happen. You're more creative, you solve problems, you are successful in life, people like you, people trust you. But they, so it's, they wanna get you there, but they all have this problem, which is how do you try not to try? How can you consciously try to be spontaneous? And in the trade, so I've worked on this problem academically for a long time as my dissertation topic. But what I point out in the trade book is that it's from a cognitive scientific perspective, it's a direct paradox. So trying when you're trying not to try, if you're telling yourself, well, I need to be relaxed, this will go much better if I'm calm and relaxed. The part of the part of your brain you're activating when you're trying not to try is actually the part you're trying to shut down. So it's, it's very much in uh, social psychology, uh, the late Dan Wagner talked about the white bear problem. If you say, don't think of a white bear, you're going to think of a white bear because I've just activated that concept. So it's a direct cognitive paradox. And one of these early Chinese, so I document all the various ways the Chinese philosophers try to get around it using meditation, all these, these indirect techniques. But there's a one, one story in the Zhuangzi, this Taoist text, about a uh, person who's coming back from a big party and is really drunk and falls off the back of a cart and isn't harmed because his spirit is whole, as the text puts it. And he's, he didn't know he was riding. He doesn't know he's fallen out. So nothing can harm him. So he's kind of relaxed in the moment because he's drunk. And it's clear in the text that this is just a metaphor. So at the, at the end of that passage, the text says, you know, if you can get drunk, uh, if, you're, if you can make your spirit whole this way with wine, how much more so can you do it with heaven, which is a spiritual force they want you to get drunk on metaphorically. But that made me start thinking, what about literal drunkenness? <laughs> like actually it's not a bad approximation of the spiritual state that they want you to get into. And so it made me start to think about how cultures might be using alcohol as a technology for getting around this paradox of how you can try not to try. Spontaneity, there's, there are certain situations in which spontaneity is desirable. It's hard to be consciously trying to be spontaneous. Maybe the solution to that 
is using a chemical substance that can just reach into your brain and turn your prefrontal cortex down a few notches. And that gets you around the paradox. It's a tool for creating spontaneity chemically. Very cool. I know you in your latest text, Drunk, you speak a lot about the prefrontal cortex. Can you explain like that's for for idiots like myself, can you explain a little bit about what alcohol does to the prefrontal cortex? What what is the relationship to that? Yeah, so the the prefrontal cortex is the villain in my book essentially. So it's a really important part of our brain. We it's we have it for a reason. It's the center of what psychologists call cognitive control or executive function. So it's the part of your brain that allows you to stay focused on tasks, suppress desires, delay gratification, uh, control impulses, everything that a, a properly functioning adult human can do. It, it's due to the prefrontal cortex. So very, it's a very important sure part of the brain. It's the last part of the brain to mature. So it doesn't completely mature until your mid twenties, right. which is why teenagers are so dangerous because they've got all the equipment except for a prefrontal cortex. <laughs> so they get into trouble. Right. Um, so it's a really important part of the brain, but it, it has, it's, it's a, ne it has negative effects in certain domains of our lives. So when it comes to creativity, for instance, it's a, it's a, it's a barrier. So one of the things that al alcohol is, doing lots of things all at the same time to our body brain systems. But one of the things it's doing is it's a depressant partially. It's a stimulant and a depressant at the same time, but it's depressing function is concentrated on just a few brain regions. And one of those is the prefrontal cortex. So one of the main effects of alcohol that I look at is its role in temporarily, essentially paralyzing the PFC the prefrontal cortex. Um, it has a very similar effect that in modern experiments, if you want to see how people function without their PFC, you use a transcranial magnet and you just zap it <laughs> and it kind of takes it offline for a little bit. Um, alcohol essentially does the same thing. It's a low tech way of, of doing the exact same thing, taking your PFC offline. For One time. sounds a little bit more painful than the other. Yeah. yeah, or just, you know, kind of yeah. unpleasant. You don't want to have a party with everyone hooked up to transcranial. <laughs> no. They're expensive. Yeah, so. but maybe the future. Yeah, maybe the future. So if you want to, you know, alcohol has its downside. So maybe mm -hmm. one day we'll all just have, you know, you walk into a bar and instead of beer, you'll just have a transcranial magnet. It just gets out. Yeah, very cool. So the PFC is kind of like what what makes us responsible, but it's kind of, it also makes us not fun, makes us yeah. responsible people, but we want to, we want to get rid of that because it's, because we don't want the responsibility. So let's dump some alcohol in our system. That'll loosen up the prefrontal cortex. And then we can, we can be creative and fun and, and yeah. back to our youthful selves. Is that where rationale lives as well? Is that yeah, it's where rationality and abstract thinking mm -hmm. um, are, you know, all part of the, generally speaking, the prefrontal cortex. Um, and it is it is taking us back to being kids in a, in a very almost literal way, because it's the, what you see over development is as the prefrontal cortex matures, all, all these other traits go down. Creativity goes down, trustingness and kind of spontaneity go down. So one way to look at alcohol is that it's a way to temporarily get you back into being a child again, mentally, <laughs> which is useful for some purposes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I, I think something maybe we'll hop in. We we're really interested and in, I know your text particularly focus, it doesn't focus just on alcohol, particularly not just beer. You stem into like hallucinogens as well. We're, we're a little bit more of a beer centric podcast so we might okay. stay towards the alcohol side of things but if we need to veer to to other other fun things that like to to make our prefrontal cortex um more relaxed we can but i was wondering if you could give us with your um with your newest book could you give us a little bit of because i know you delve into the history of intoxication so could you can you give us just a little bit of background on on the history of when did we as a civilization as a as a species start utilizing alcohol let's just say alcohol to start 
and and for what purpose did it serve in its initial form? We've been making and consuming alcoholic beverages as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. So, you know, we don't have, it's hard to get a sense of really nailed down when the first beer was made. Um, it's pretty clear. We have some evidence. We have some uh, pictographic evidence from 20,000 years ago that looks like people drinking some, they're drinking something and it's really important what they're drinking. So it's probably not water. <laughs> they seem to be having a really good time. Um, but you know, the, we don't know what it is exactly. The first direct evidence we have of alcohol production is about 13,000 years old. So in present day Israel, we have remains of beer making. We have chemical traces that show they were making some kind of malted beer. So that's way before agriculture. So hunter-gatherers were, were getting together and making beer and having these big feast rituals uh, before we had agriculture. And in fact, if you look at the archeological record, the suggestion is that um, it was the, the desire to get intoxicated to make more and better beer that motivated us to start focusing on domesticating plants in the first place. So the standard story that we've been told is that, and this is what I had learned, that we had agriculture and we were motivated to, to grow crops and have agriculture so we had more better food sources. And then at some point by accident, we kind of stumbled on beer. You know, we left some stuff sitting around too long and it fermented. Um, this, this evidence suggests it's the other way around. It was actually the desire to get intoxicated that caused us to start domesticating plant species. And then it was after that, that we were like, oh, well, we can also make some bread to <laughs> help us with a hangover the next morning. Um, so if, if this is true, that, you know, the desire to get intoxicated directly gave rise to civilization because agriculture is the key to civilization. So, so we've, been do, we've been trying to get high for as long as we've been trying to do anything in any kind of organized way. And that was really an eye-opener for me when I started researching the book, because I had been taught that this kind of byproduct story of alcohol, that it just kind of was an accidental discovery. But you see this pattern. This is, I'm talking here about the, the Fertile Crescent, so the Near East, where we first get agriculture. Mm -hmm. But you see the same pattern around the world. The, the first domesticated species seem to be selected for their psychotropic qualities, their ability to make intoxicants, either um, hallucinogens or their ability to be made into beers, um, rather than for food production. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I think, could you maybe delve cool. into the, the, the evidence that we have? So like what you're saying, and on Garrett and I, we do craft beer tours in the city of Toronto, and our the story that we tell, because no one really knows, because it's thousands of years ago, is that, well, some some foolish, drunk, some idiot Mesopotamian man or woman, <laughs> probably a man, fell face down into two-week-old or three-week-old, bready, disgusting, old, like, a puddle. puddle that's established yeah. itself that created, like, a rudimentary form of beer. Of course, we don't know that. We don't know that at all. And what you're saying is, no, it's completely the opposite. It's not... We weren't making bread for thousands of yeah. years. And then we decided, oh, let's convert this into something fun, such as alcohol, such as beer. You're saying it, it was the beer itself that was the initial purpose for creating agriculture. Yeah. Like that's, that's crazy. And how do, what are, what is the actual evidence? Like, could you delve a little bit further into the evidence that we have yeah. that would suggest that? Yeah. So we have, well, so we have the evidence of beer making 13,000 years ago. And we don't have agriculture yet. And at this site, I'm fairly certain they don't have evidence of any kind of bread making. So the, the residues suggest that fermentation was what was going on, not bread making. We have a, this site in present day Turkey that's about 12,000 years ago, probably Gobekli Tepe, yes. which was a ritual site. Again, hunter gatherers, they, they didn't have agriculture. They didn't live at this site. So it was not an occupied site. It was just a ritual. It was used for rituals. And they were coming from all over, gathering at this site. 
feasting on wild animals. So we have a lot of bones of gazelles and things that live, wild animals that lived in the region, um, having some sort of religious ceremony. So they erected these massive stone pillars. It's kind of looks like Stonehenge. It's actually really impressive. Um, and so doing massive amounts of labor, uh, engaging in these rituals, and then drinking something. And so we have these big vats that were used to store or process some sort of liquid. Again, we don't, we don't have chemical residues from this, so we don't know if it was, maybe they were just drinking a lot of sparkling water. <laughs> but it just seems super unlikely to me that these people were being drawn to this site and having these feasts um, and drinking water with it because we know they knew how to make beer at this point. And we've got some, we have some, also some pictographs from the same region from around the same time, not the same site that show uh, people, people dancing with animals. So one of the ones I reproduced in the book is people dancing with turtles. Um, and it's hard to imagine that people were imagining this happening, drinking water. Uh, so they were, they were, I think that they're almost certainly making beer and probably hallucinogen-laced beer. So early beers in a lot of, you know, medieval Europe, a lot of beers contain small amounts of hallucinogens as well. So people are getting the beer taste and the alcohol effect, but they're also getting a bit of um, hallucinogenic action. So we have that. We have the fact that in South America, the so maize was the domesticated crop there and the wild ancestor of maize is called teosinte and teosinte makes really crappy grain like if your goal was to make tortillas you would not notice this plant because it makes really bad grain products but it makes really good beer and it's, it makes this beer called chicha, which is still, it's produced out of maize now, but it's the, it's this beer like alcoholic substance. And so again, it's, it's puzzling if people were looking at plants for food sources, they wouldn't choose Teosinte. If they were looking for plants to make alcoholic beverages, it would be great for that. And then later on, again, once they cultivate it, they get the grains to be larger and more productive, then you can start making grain products out of it to eat. But it, it doesn't make any sense why it was domesticated unless it was being used first for alcoholic beverages. And we see, we see this pattern around the world. Um, uh, it's, it's argued that the, really the, the first domesticated plants in North America were tobacco. And it was a very strong form of tobacco and probably smoked with wild hallucinogens included as well, wild plants that had um, psychedelic effects. So um, wherever we see people starting to really focus on domesticating plants, the pattern seems to be it's plants that have psychotropic qualities. They're not, they're not for food. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's so fascinating. But, and you delve into this a little bit like what is the evolutionary purpose for people wanting to consume intoxicants, hallucinogens, tobaccos? Like what, how does this serve us in a positive way that would not only assist us in our evolutionary trajectory, but also it, we still do it today. We still, it's still sought after. It's still desired everywhere on the planet. Like what do we get out of it in the positive light? So this, the standard story, again, we've been told, so the same way we've been told that alcohol is kind of this accidental guy falling in a vat of bread making stuff by mistake. <laughs> um, we've been told that alcohol, the, the reason we desire, the reason that guy who fell into that vat of bread making stuff liked it is because it just happened to accidentally hit some pleasure centers in his brain. So the standard story is that our taste for intoxication is, a is an evolutionary mistake. It's the typical story is that it's a hijack, what referred to as an evolutionary hijack. So you get a reward circuit that uh, evolved for one adaptive reason, and then humans figure out how to kind of trigger it for no good reason. And the classic example of that that I begin the book with is masturbation, right? So we evolution gives us this awesome, the best reward we can get, 
for doing the thing that most directly serves our genes interests, which is reproductive sex. That's what our genes really want us to do. So we can, we figured out and actually other species have figured out how to trigger that same reward in other ways. <laughs> so we have all sorts of non-reproductive ways to get that same reward. We're basically getting something for nothing. We're getting, we're getting ple pleasure is something evolution gives us as a thank you, you did a great job, keep doing that for something that's adaptive. We figured out ways to get that same reward, even when we're not doing the thing the reward is supposed to be for. Now, in the case of hijacks like that, evolution kind of lets us get away with it because it's it doesn't care about perfect. It doesn't want perfect. It just it's happy with good enough. And the orgasm has been a good enough motivation to get people to reproduce. So it doesn't care if we're doing other stuff on the side. It's not very costly. Masturbation is not very costly. Um, Another type of mistake is what I call mismatch. So this is when something was adaptive at, in our past, but it's not now. And so the example I give is junk food. So we have mm -hmm. this taste for sugar and fat, which makes a lot of sense in an evolutionary environment. Sugar and fat are in, you know, rare and small quantities. If we come upon some of it, we should eat as much of it as we can right away. It's very adaptive. It's only not adaptive relatively recently in the industrialized world where, you know, in Toronto and Vancouver, where you can walk to a corner store and get Twinkies and soda pop and all this stuff is really bad for you. Um, in this case, the evolution lets us get away with it or evolution hasn't done anything about it because it's super recent. So this problem of too much fat and sugar is really recent and it's geographically limited. Like there's still even right now, mm -hmm. there are a lot of places in the world where people could use a lot more sugar and fat. Um, so it's it's a relatively recent and it's a localized problem. So that's a mismatch theory. So there are various hijack, hijack's the dominant one. There are some mismatch theories about how alcohol might've been adaptive in the past, but isn't now. But I argue that none of that makes any sense because alcohol, so first of all, unlike junk food, it's been around forever and it's been everywhere. So it's not a recent localized phenomenon. And unlike masturbation, it's super costly. It's alcohol is really bad for you. <laughs> it's actually really not good for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. Physiologically, you know, it's bad for your liver. It raises your cancer risk. Sociologically, it can lead to all sorts of disorder. Uh, probably a good 15% of the human population is prone genetically prone to alcoholism 15 prone to, yeah 15 percent. that's a lot uh -huh. um and it and if you're prone to alcoholism you cannot drink safely um, you're really in danger of drinking to excess and 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 it's just costly economically if you look at um i I cite a statistic from ancient Sumer, so you know ancient Mesopotamia, these beer makers, up to 50%, so half of the grain they produced was fermented into beer. So massive, you know, they're, they're, they could have been making wholesome breads wow. and porridges, but instead they're making a neurotoxin. And if you just look at humans, human behavior around the world, we're putting massive amounts of resources into making alcoholic beverages when we could be making something that's nutritious and doesn't harm our bodies. And so, so I'm arguing none of the mistake theories make any sense. There's got to be, so for our taste for alcohol to remain in our gene pool, and it could, it, there, there are good solutions. If alcohol is just a mistake, there are existing solutions to this mistake. So the, the kind of, you know, basic question of drunk is why do we like to get drunk and the shallow response is well it makes us feel good but that's not really an answer so the, the real question is why does it make us feel good why does evolution allow it to continue to make us feel good and one answer one potential answer could be it hasn't figured out how to get rid of the mistake yet but it has. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that there's a, there's a set of mutations that arose probably seven to 10,000 years ago. So quite a long time ago that give rise to what's sometimes called the Asian flushing syndrome. So right. this is where when you drink a little bit of alcohol, your face turns red, you get heart palpitations, you feel nauseous. It's really unpleasant. 
And people who have this set of mutations, this is the solution, right? They don't like to drink. They, they, it's like, it's like if you just didn't like Twinkies and you found broccoli awesome and you just devoured broccoli, whatever you yeah. can find it. That that's exists. What, that's what I'm waiting for. Edward. That's what you're waiting for. That <laughs> evolution hasn't evolution hasn't figured that one out yet, but yeah. it has figured out the alcohol one. So if alcohol were really just a cost, that that gene complex should have spread everywhere by now because it's really old. And yet it hasn't. It's remained really geographically localized. Uh, mostly, it started out in what's now Southeast China, yeah. spread a bit to Northern China and Korea and Japan, but it hasn't moved very much. And it's and it's independently arisen at least twice in the Mideast and Europe, and again, remained very geographically localized. So this just there's, there's got to be the fact that evolution doesn't seem to care even when it comes up with a solution to this problem suggests that it's not a problem. That actually, if you look at all, there are all these obvious costs, but there's got to be functional adaptive benefits on the other side. And that's what's kept the taste for intoxication in our gene pool is that um, there are benefits to it as well. There must be. I, is it su- suffice to say like those, like I'm familiar with the, is it what's the term is it the the asian flush is that is that the asian flushing asian, syndrome is asian flushing calls, syndrome. Yeah. yeah so is it suffice to say i don't know if we know this if anyone knows this that the entire human species is moving in that direction that we will all one day thousands hundreds of thousands of years from now if we're if we're all here i hope I not yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we yeah. will we stop the, 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 the smell and the consumption of beer of alcohol will be so repugnant that we will have superseded we will have evolved to get rid of this this hijack this i hate to use this term this virus from yeah. again system. i told yeah. you too soon i know i keep saying <laughs> too soon saying viruses i know yeah no you know what it, i mean it, does that make sense yeah. Edward, i'm sorry absolutely absolutely and it makes sense if it were just a virus if it were just a hijack but it would have happened by now so people have this also, another misconception that okay. i try to dispel in the book is this idea that evolution is super slow and takes a really long time i mean getting the right mutation could take a long time because it's random you know, it's just random combinations and mistakes but once you get the right mutation as we've seen, I mean, let's talk about viruses. Let's talk about um, how many times COVID-19 has mutated. Once you get the right mutation, if it works, it's going to go everywhere right away. Um, so human beings, we've seen this with um, humans in, in recorded history. Humans have adapted to drinking milk as adults. So lactose yeah. tolerance is the result of a mutation that was beneficial. And it spread to almost everywhere where people, you know, could benefit from keeping animals and drinking their milk. Um, people who move, we humans haven't lived for very long in the Tibetan plateau. So Tibetan plateau is really high, very high altitude, very difficult to live there. Um, but in the short period of time we've lived there, humans have lived there. Those people have adapted to living in high altitudes. They have different blood chemistry. To their their red blood cells are different. Um, in Southeast Asia, people who have lived for, you know, probably thousands of years, but again, not that, not that long in an evolutionary time scale, have adapted to being able to hold their breath underwater and see underwater better than most people, because that's how they make their living. That's how they catch their food. So evolution can act really fast if it wants to. And so, so, you're, so you're right, that, that vision you have of everyone gradually just finding alcohol repugnant should have happened about 5,000 years ago, I think, if alcohol were really just a problem. And, and so that, that, for me, is part of the, the, the argument that something else has to be going on. There, have to be, there has to be adaptive benefits. Um, plus, there's the cultural evolutionary argument. So cultural evolution works really fast. So it's lightning fast. And there's a very simple cultural evolutionary solution to the problem of alcohol, which is just ban it. So people have been trying to prohibit alcohol for as long as we've been making alcohol. So in ancient, one of the first legal statutes we have from ancient China is uh, the declaration that anyone caught making or drinking alcohol will be put to death. And we found, I think we found this, this statute in a tomb that was full of 
booze paraphernalia. <laughs> Just like, I mean, these tombs were full of ritual the, vessels that were used for, for serving and drinking alcohol. The hypocrisy. Uh, well, the Chi- and the Chinese just never slowed down. They've been making alcohol for probably as long as, again, yeah. they've been doing anything in an organized way. Um, so, yeah, so there's got to be functional benefits. And so that's what a big part of the book is dedicated to, is laying out what those functional benefits might be, what they, what they probably have been historically, and how those functions might still be happening in the modern world. Well, you, you speak a lot about, and this relates back to the, prefrontal cortex a little bit you talk a little bit about alcohol as as a muse mm-hmm. um like could that be a reason like the cultural like suffice to say that a lot of artistic types i don't know if it goes which way it goes artistic types sometimes gravitate towards substances um or the substances warp people into becoming artistic types i think it's probably the former right they artistic types gravitate towards I'm thinking of like I think you talk about talk about a few different people Ernest Hemingway being one of them mm-hmm. uh, quite the drinker if there ever was one and yeah. um, quite an artistic guy as well so is it yeah. is it part of this cultural aspect of well alcohol or or substances hallucinogens perhaps they lead to benefits in our culture I mean it creates breathtaking works of art um, in all varieties, art, song, uh, dance, music. I mean, was that, does that make sense? Is, is, could that be a reason why alcohols were never going to supersede alcohol? It, it has connections with developing our culture. Is that, is that kind of where, yeah, that's maybe, what, I, that's maybe one of the, I misread your chapter. I'm sorry. No, no, that's one of the, that's one of the first functions I propose is creativity. So yeah. humans as a species, are uniquely dependent on creativity because we're uniquely dependent on, on technology and tool use. So we, we can't survive without tools, unlike any, we're the only species that really is pretty much helpless without tools. And the environment's constantly changing, so we need to be changing our tools. Um, even if the environment's not changing, other cultural groups are trying to exploit the environment alongside of us and if they do a better job of it they're going to outcompete us so we've got to be we have to be in the game we have to be constantly innovating and so creativity has got to be one of the reasons that the desire for intoxication has remained in our species and so if you talk about the relationship between artists and intoxicants it's probably a feedback loop right so Maybe people who are more creative are attracted to intoxicants because they like what happens to them when they drink them and, and they become more creative and then they turn to intoxicants again. Uh, but this, this, you find this association between artistic creation and alcohol, for instance, everywhere. It's ancient. You see it everywhere in China, uh, medieval Europe, in ancient Greece, Mesopotamia. Uh, it's something people observing for a very long time. And so I walk people through that, these historical attitudes toward creativity and alcohol, but then look at some modern experimental evidence that would suggest why this would be the case. So I mentioned the turning down the prefrontal cortex. Uh, Four-year-olds, if if you're uh, looking at performance on creativity tasks, so these are tasks where you, they're called lateral thinking tasks sometimes. So you need to you need to make unusual connections or you need to basically think outside the box. The solution is not the obvious one. It's something unexpected. In tasks like this, if you look at kids, so four-year-olds do the best and there's this linear decline over time. So (laughs) four-year-olds are the best, adults are the worst. Um, And in the book, I put that, that performance line next to the development of the prefrontal cortex you know, basically tracks the development of the prefrontal cortex. So as your, your prefrontal cortex is focusing you, it's making you less able to do these lateral things. And so one function of alcohol is to temporarily make us four-year-olds again. So yeah. we get to have that kind of flexibility and creativity again. Um, there's experimental evidence that suggests that if you get people drunk, there's, there's very few direct uh, studies of alcohol on creativity, but one of the one that there, that is out there suggests that at about 0.08 BAC, so about 
two beers in maybe yeah. depending on if you've eaten how much you weigh and what you had for dinner. Um, that that's the peak. That's where you're best at creativity tasks. And so, um, and there's good reason. There's a, there's a lot of converging evidence that basically taking the PFC down a couple of notches allows you to relax into the state of mind where suddenly you're open to thinking in a different way. I mean, I, it's funny because I, I experienced this directly when I was proposing this book. So I wrote about 10 versions of the proposal, book proposal, and my agent kept sending it back to me and saying, in her, she's not very polite, actually. It's pretty blunt. <laughs> she's like, this is just, I just, yeah, it's garbage. Like, she, she's, she, she's a Manhattanite. She's, right. a, yeah, she's just like, yeah. Time is money. Yeah, yeah, this is not, I'm not sending this out, basically. Um, and she was right, like she's good. Um, it was not ready to send out. And it was it was frustrating to me because all the stuff was there. Like all the science was there, all the theories were there, the history was there. So I was like, what's going on? And what I realized is it just didn't pop, like it mm. didn't draw you in. And And then I realized, oh, I haven't taken my own advice. Like I hadn't written any part of the proposal while drunk. <laughs> that was the problem. And so as soon as I realized that, I was like, this is what, I'm missing. And so I was actually on a work trip. So this was pre-COVID. I was uh, in New Zealand and I just oh, wow. just arrived and I was supposed to be having dinner with colleagues, but I had about two hours before dinner. <laughs> and so I went down to the hotel bar and ordered a Negroni, which is my cocktail of choice, That's and good. had my had my laptop. Yeah. And by the end of Negroni number one and probably the first sip of Negroni number two, the the first, basically the, what's now the first three pages of the book reve revealed themselves to me. Like, it, and the feeling was very much of just taking dictation. Like, I didn't feel like I was composing the words. It just was like, oh, this is how it needs to start to be interesting. And, you know, a lot of, I've done a lot of interviews. I've talked to a lot of people. Everyone remarks on the beginning of the book, just draws you in. You know, people like to masturbate. <laughs> people are just like, oh, that's all right. Let's check this out. Uh, let's read the, uh, we'll read this book. Yeah, yeah. this is pretty like, good. Yeah. It's a good hook. That hook was the product of probably about point, point oh eight, maybe 0.09 uh, PAC. <laughs> so it's, you know, I've experienced this directly. And, it, and in the book, in the writing of the book, I, you know, I've used alcohol strategically. So there were times when just I couldn't, the chapters weren't fitting together right, or the conclusions to a chapter were not working, or the transitions were bad. And those are the times I would, and then I did this also with trying not to try, where I wrote that in Rome, actually, most of it when I was on sabbatical in Rome. And, and I'd have a morning writing session, and then I'd go do chores, work out, deal with stuff. And then I'd often have like a late afternoon, early evening writing session at this local wine bar. I would go sit at and have a glass of wine and write. And I did certain types of writing much better in that afternoon wine-fueled writing period than the morning caffeine-fueled writing period. They're just different types of tasks, yeah. and they different chemicals are good for each of those tasks. So humans have figured this out. How to how to use alcohol as a tool to to loosen up the get rid of the playground monitor for a little bit so that the brain can relax and do its thing. I like how your book started off as a historical document into an experimental study. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Write it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is, it is, it was, I was, I basically did a, kind of hit myself on the head. Like I haven't, I'm advising people that creativity needs alcohol and I haven't written any of this in alcohol. It's a problem. So, um, so well, duly noted. Why, yeah. And so this is why groups, you know, or organizations that are successful use alcohol. So I talk about Google. Uh, I gave a talk on spontaneity and creativity and I mentioned alcohol in this talk uh, that I gave at Google campus for trying not to try years and years ago. And the first thing after the talk, the, 
the guys who were going to get take me on a campus tour said we have to take you here first and they took me to their whiskey room <laughs> they were like this is where we go um you know when we're we hit a problem we just can't we can't figure out how to solve this problem and sitting in front of our computer screens is not helping we're not getting any closer to a solution instead of sitting in front of the computer screens for another four hours, they go to the whiskey room and they pour themselves a glass of whiskey. They sit in beanbag chairs and they just talk. They share information in a different way than they, they would sitting at their desk drinking coffee. And they often come to solutions in that way. So I think that, you know, it's not only important for individual creativity, it's important for group creativity. And it's especially important in a group because it's it's almost um, it's a reinforcing. It's got multiple ways it's helping that out. So it's helping individual creativity because you're thinking in a more creative way, but it's also disinhibiting you. And so you're willing to say things that your sober self might think was stupid or would make you sound like you don't know what you're doing or is irrelevant, but you'll just blurt it out because you're disinhibited. And often that's the thing that is new and people are like, oh, yeah, actually, that makes sense. Let's talk more about that. And so it really is a crucial component in group innovation. And I look at some data that suggests that actually cultural innovation goes down when public drinking is interfered with. So when you when you lose, when you, people can't go to the pub or the saloon anymore, their cultures suffer in terms of innovation. Sounds very so, familiar. Yeah. So Edward, you're, you're saying, yeah. So you're saying like the the Don Draper Mad Men era of of having some alcohol in your office, like maybe that, maybe we were too soon to throw that concept away. If you're acting in a, if you if you need creativity in your day, you have some a coffee period of the day and maybe a little whiskey period of the day as well. Maybe that. We're going to have a comeback of that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, well, that that Mad Men's a good way to segue into the dangers too. Right? <laughs> I mean, the problem with that, and so this is this is the issue: is that alcohol is two sided, and almost yeah. all the benefits come with these negative sides as well. And so, you know, I I talk in the book about the fact that in academia, so there's this movement in academia to make everything dry like conferences should be dry, receptions should be dry. No one should be allowed to hang out at the conference bar, you know, after sessions. Um, and this is a thorny issue because it is the case that people go to conferences to hear the talks, but they go mainly to hang out with their friends and drink. <laughs> I mean, have meals, but to drink. And, and a lot of the most important work, at, I think at professional conferences happens at the hotel bar. It's so where true. people down, down regulating their PFCs, they're feeling better. So socially, another thing that's happening with alcohol is it's, it's boosting endorphins and serotonin. So you're feeling happier about people and better about people. You're bonding with them more. Um, and it would be tragic to lose that. Um, and, you know, I talk about in grad school, we had these, we'd go to the pub, we have this weekly graduate seminar and then we go to the pub and actually we learned a lot more from the pub component of it, I think, than the graduate seminar component of it. So we don't want to lose that. But we also want to point out that those are male dominated events and they're events where women are very likely and for really good reason going to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it creates, it's a really, um, alcohol bonds people and it creates this great camaraderie, but it excludes people by that very same function. It's excluding people. And so we need to figure out how to capture the benefits of alcohol fueled sociality while mitigating all these downsides, because you know it's great that at a hotel bar I can strike up a new collaboration with someone I wouldn't have met otherwise, and or I can I meet some grad student who's finishing up their degree and needs a postdoc. I think that's that's so true. It's it's the the problem with human beings in moderation. Like like right like I've had one beer right now and I feel terrific. And if I continue to drink, I don't like I'll be chasing this level 
of perfection. I was going to say it's the pursuit of that terrific. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like, like I don't smoke, but occasionally I'll have, I'll do a little social, a little social drug. You're all, you're always searching for. Yeah. And like, I'll have like one one cigarette is paradise. And then two cigarettes is disgusting. Like it's like, Ugh, yeah. this is this is affecting my body in a terrible way i don't get the head rush anymore yeah and then i'll have a third before, one just because i'm already in for a penny like, in oh, for yeah. a pound right you're just like i'm already here man yeah, keep going. Right? no no well yeah next but you know a pack of darts is gone and you feel great the next morning then you don't even yeah. notice you're doing it anymore you just it's then it just becomes habit yeah so edward how Plus, do we how do we get to this this it seems like like, how do we get to a point? It seems like a, a, an in-moderation alcohol is good. I think we've established that, maybe. And, and also, but also leveling the playing field for people who don't right. drink, right? So maybe I don't drink because I'm a Muslim. Maybe sure. I don't drink because I'm a recovering alcoholic or pregnant. Or I don't want to downregulate my PFC because I'm a woman and I'm surrounded by a bunch yes. of dudes. <laughs> and it's 10 o'clock at night and I want to... I don't want to downregulate my PFC. Thank you very much. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why people might be uncomfortable about drinking. And so you got to figure out a way to capture those benefits while leveling the playing field for non-drinkers. And I, there are some suggestions in the book about how to do that, um, a lot of which I, I've gotten from other people. So I cite this uh, Kara Souls, who's, who works in the tech industry um, and has, has some great suggestions that it's, they're simple, but they're not always implemented. So just, you know, make water available, easily available, just as available as alcohol is. Um, make non-alcoholic, if you're serving beer, make non-alcoholic beers just as available right next yes. to them on the table, right? If you're serving cocktails, have virgin mm-hmm. cocktails there as well. So people aren't stigmatized for not drinking. Um, so you got to level the playing field, uh, you know, have these events at times that are more family friendly. Um, you know, don't, it shouldn't be happening at 11 PM at, around the hotel bar, right? <laughs> Cause, um, people have kids or, you know, you just can't, they can't attend. So you need to, you need to make it more just in terms of the scheduling of it friendly to people. Um, and you should probably focus on this. I guess you guys will like this. You should focus on beer. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book is the dangers of distilled liquors. Yes. And so, um, our ability to, so for most of our history, we've been drinking relatively weak beers. Most people look around the world. Most people are drinking real, are, you know, grain based alcoholic beverages that are coming in at maybe two to 3% ABV. So relatively weak beers. You can drink those. You want to stay at that sweet spot. So kind of the one cigarette pleasure spot. <laughs> um, beer is the way to do it, right? You can, I can drink, this is a, this is an IPA. So that might be it. a little heavy. Yeah. 6.7. So so yeah. So this Ooh, is a pretty, this is pretty strong beer. Yeah. Um, so this is maybe a little dangerous, but um, you know, oh, most weak. beers come in at four or 5%. You can drink those. I have a 3.5. I'm upset. Yeah. Sorry. Man. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think I, beers. Yeah, I think that's well, I think in the market is adapting to that, speaking in the evolutionary sure. terms of of the market. I mean, Garrett and I, we work with craft breweries okay. in and around Toronto. And it, there there is such a rise in sales in terms of like session ales, like lower alcohol, as well as non-alcoholic beers. So a lot of craft right. breweries are are creating um a beer without alcohol there's there's a trend too i know we've spoken to a couple of breweries of like of creating cool things like like hop water um okay. that's just that's hop just sort of popular, yeah now. which i haven't tried yet but i would like to um so, so that's a great that, idea so essentially yeah. it sounds like craft breweries are actually trying to go back to the traditional way of drinking which is let's drink two to three percent beers and i'm not a, i'm actually not a beer drinker i'm, I'm more into wine um and I think it's, I like the taste of beer. I think I must be allergic to hops or something. It just, I drink a beer and I'm full and that's basically I'm done. Um, but I have to admit as a, just intellectually from a scholarly perspective, beer is the perfect alcoholic beverage because it's, it's low enough in content 
that you can drink it safely. You can drink it all evening with people socially without getting dangerously drunk. Um, most of the benefits that I document in the book come in around 0.08 BAC. And, and if you're drinking a two to 3%, 4% beer, you're gonna stay about 0.08. Mm -hmm. So, so it aren't. really in a way is, is the, it's the perfect drug. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting that craft breweries maybe are picking up on this and realizing that that's what people want is something you can drink without going over the line into dangerous levels of intoxication. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, even like the, it's not even the, the product itself, but even craft breweries, I suspect you're aware and a wonderful city like Vancouver, like the, the ambiance of a craft brewery is not like the ambiance of a tavern or a saloon yeah, <laughs> or a whiskey yeah. bar. Like it's, it's very, pub. do they still have yeah. saloons? You know, I don't know yeah. why I said it. Um, <laughs> you still in operation. It's spending too much time in the Yukon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but it's like, it's, it's more of a friendly family pet friendly on typically uh environment that's that really is inclusive that i think the market was sort of lacking and and it, it seems to be catching up a little bit in that regard well the market in north america was lacking but that's how people drink right. in britain right i mean the pub the british pub is that place right it's um, and we have that here like in vancouver there are british style pubs yes and you know you go in and it's old people, it's people with kids, it's college students, it, everyone's there. And, you know, they're eating, there's food, and it's primarily beer that people are drinking. Yeah. And it's social in this way that's inclusive and family friendly. That's the way that people have historically consumed alcohol. And what's new, so what's dangerous and new in the last chapter of the book that I talk about I call it the two dangers I talk about are distillation and isolation. So distillation is, a, so alcohol comes with a built-in safety feature, right? At a certain point, the yeast shut themselves down because alcohol is a poison <laughs> and they're poisoning themselves. It's just they're poisoning themselves more slowly than the bacteria they're trying to compete with. Um, you know, and then, you know, modern brewers have figured out ways to breed really strong yeast, but still the, the best you can get with natural fermentation is about 16%, maybe 17% ABV. So it's kind of head banging Australian Syrahs that you open, take the cork out and it kind of knocks you on your back with the alcoholic fumes. Those are like 16, 17%. Um, but that's it because you can't get any stronger than that. But distillation gives you a way of workaround, right? You pull the alcohol off repeatedly and you can get this really powerful form of alcohol. And that's what people don't realize is that's a really recent development. And I actually didn't realize this until I started mm -hmm. researching the book. Um, in Europe, so in the West, <clears throat> we probably didn't have distilled liquors widely available until, until really the 1600s, 1700s. And, you know, I'm telling a story that starts 10 million years ago when our primate ancestors started adapting to alcohol. And certainly by 20,000 years ago, we were seriously consuming alcohol. So that's like yesterday in an evolutionary timescale. So, so distilled liquors are just much more, just orders of magnitude more powerful than what we've traditionally been consuming. And, and we should be aware of that and realize how dangerous they are. And then the other innovation is, is drinking alone. So the fact that you can drive your SUV into a drive-through liquor store and have them load up the back with vodka and firearms and Slim Jims and, and take that to your house and just have it there <laughs> and you can consume as much as you want is crazy. Like that's never happened. Like we've never, humans have never had private access to alcohol. Alcohol has always been a communal thing that you drink uh, with other people. You have access to it in a ritual environment where the drinking is being paced. Um, and even in, in informal situations like a brew pub or a, an English pub, you're moderating your drinking even though you don't realize it. Um, having to order another round, you know, you, you don't just order as much beer as you want. You wait for everyone to be done so you get another round. 
Um, there's that speed bump of having to order another round. You don't just have it there in your refrigerator and you can grab it. Um, there's, 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 there's social disapproval um, in su very subtle ways or even more explicit ways like the bartender cutting you off. There are ways that, that societies control individuals drinking. And that all gets thrown out the door when you're home alone and you have access to alcohol. And I think COVID shown by exacerbating this trend, COVID shown, you know, how, how ugly that gets when it's in an extreme form. So yes. there's a lot of evidence that our, our drinking has gotten really unhealthy in COVID lockdowns because, you know, we've had liquor delivery services now, right? <laughs> People deliver liquor to your door. Um, yeah. And when you're, when you're home alone, I mean, I've spent, I, my partner's in the States. So I've been, um, I've endured at this point, 11 quarantines. I've done 11 two week quarantines. Oh my God. Like, but you just traveling back and forth, having to quarantine back in Vancouver. Ouch. Yeah. How, how were those Edward? Did you enjoy them? When, when I, when I was writing the book, they were great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> um, it was really good when I was writing and I'm an introvert. So actually I can, kind of accidentally quarantine myself for long periods of time because I just don't go out of the house. But when you, you, you're not allowed to go out of the house and especially once the book was done, it was horrible because normally when I'm done with my book, I want to do other stuff and go out and I couldn't. Um, but what I could do is drink. Like I could have, you know, cases of liquor delivered to my house. And that was just a really unhealthy situation where you've got no, nothing to do and no social contact, yeah. but you can have as much food and alcohol delivered to your house as you want. It's just not normal. It's not natural. Mm -hmm. uh, did you? Are, did, sorry, Edward. Did you find your alcohol consumption increased during COVID? Oh yeah, it definitely yeah. did. Yeah. No, I think my drinking got unhealthy during lockdown. Um, and the data, you know, it's still early times, but the data suggesting that al alcoholic consumption went up absolute quantities went up during COVID and certainly problem drinking went up. So reports of kind of um, alcohol abuse situations, spousal abuse situations resulting from alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a spike in all of those sorts of things. So, so problem drinking got a lot worse during the pandemic. Yeah, I know that's definitely true. I mean, I know you spoke about sure. the end of your book. You speak about these, the drinking alone but you also you kind of in the middle of the book i believe you speak about kind of the opposite and the al alcohol being a way of bonding of bringing peoples together so it's i mean we're uh, surprisingly we're running on we're running out of time we're almost we're like, at, yeah, shocked are, yeah. this is crazy but um maybe my final point will be just sort of just there's just alcohol is such a and again, I'll focus a bit more on alcohol. It's it's it just is such a two face. It just has yeah. such such positive attributes and just oh, such oh, yes, horrific attributes as well. And and how do we how do we evolve with alcohol? I mean, you mentioned things such as beer. Perhaps we should, but we also talked about prohibition and and the abolishment of alcohol. That doesn't work. Certainly, it doesn't. I mean, we're starting to roll back restrictions on other drugs as well. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just prohibition. Just to, when you when you tell the human species not to do something, particularly when it comes to things like like drugs or alcohol. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't seem to be the solution. And maybe it doesn't need to be the solution. Maybe these things are okay in society, and the 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 positive attributes do outweigh in some capacity the negative and i don't know if i have a question here but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. i'm just so saying <laughs> maybe i'll let you speak have fun yeah. with that mess <laughs> <laughs> so you know dionysus the greek god of wine has got dual aspects he's he can give you gifts but they're often really dangerous gifts so um you know he's the one who gave midas the golden touch so Midas wanted gold and he was like, sure, you want gold? Here's a gift and it turned out to be not a very good gift. Um, so, and you know, he's the God of uh, pleasure and kind of uh, pleasant intoxication. 
He's also, his followers would meet in the mountains and get wildly drunk and tear apart strangers who they came across. So he was dangerous. Um, I end the book with a, with a myth about the, probably the first myth we have about Dionysus where he is there, uh, he's discovered by some pirates. So he's on the shore appearing as kind of a rich young man and these pirates spot him and say, oh, we'll kidnap him for a ransom, uh, this rich guy. And only the steersman, the, the helmsman says, no, he's a god, don't mess with him. But no one listens to him. And so they take Dionysus hostage. And as soon as they set sail, hell breaks loose. So the, the mass turns into a grapevine and the sea turns into wine. And then Dionysus himself turns into a lion and chases the sailors, the pirates who jump into the ocean and get transformed into dolphins. So they get transformed into animals. And only the, the helmsman is spared because he recognized Dionysus and appreciated both how important he was and how dangerous he was. Um, and so I think the message, uh, one commentator on this myth says, uh, you know, the message is if we wanna retain our humanity, if we don't wanna be transformed into animals, we can't ignore Dionysus. We can't mistake Dionysus for something else. We have to re recognize Dionysus, the powers that he, the gifts that he provides but also, you know, have respect <laughs> and, and have caution. And so I think we need to figure out how to inject a bit of Dionysus into our lives without losing, without losing control ourselves, without uh, creating unfair access to sociality in a way that disadvantages people who don't like to drink. We get, there has to be a modern, the way we've done it traditionally has not been great. It's been really male dominated been elite dominated. Um, so there are better ways to do it, I think. Um, be beware of distilled liquors. If, if you want to drink something, probably actually the best thing to drink is a three to 4% craft beer, <laughs> right? It's just perfectly calibrated to keeping you in that sweet spot of intoxication. Already um, on it. Yeah, you're already on it. So, <laughs> so this is stuff I'm great. Great. Thunder Meadows IPA is probably <laughs> yeah. too strong for this purpose. Mm -hmm. um, do it socially. Don't drink alone. So really, oh. you should try to, you know, uh, yeah, so you guys are all, but we're, arguably we're <laughs> virtually social here. Yeah, it this counts, can, I guess. This counts. Oh, halfway there. Yeah, kind of counts. Yeah. yeah, you notice if I'm drinking, yeah, you know, it is, it actually does count because, you know, I'm. you see how many sips I'm taking, right? And that matters. Like you, okay. the knowledge that other people are watching you moderates your drinking behavior. Um, I started drinking beer because you guys were drinking beer, but I'm drinking beer probably around the same pace you guys are. We, there's in, in um, psycho psychological studies of this, it's called uh, matched drinking. People unconsciously match their pace of drinking to the people they're with. That's a really great control feature. Mm -hmm. So, so social, that's what keeps social drinking safe. Um, you're matching, you're drinking to other people, you're talking at the same time, you're usually eating at the same time. If you start to drink too much, people will moderate you in various ways. They'll look at you sideways, they'll say, Really? <laughs> yeah, you really need another to pour one? yourself into another one? Um, or they won't even say that. They'll just look at you in a way that conveys that information, right? Um, and so so I think the, the take-home message is benefits with dangers, but we have a pretty good sense of how to mitigate those dangers. And so I, I think that if we keep our drinking social, we keep our drinking um, primarily focused on weak beers or you know, low alcohol wines. We do it over food. Um, we do it in a family friendly social environment um, in a mixed environment where people are gonna feel welcome even if they're not drinking themselves. That's how we can unlock the benefits of alcohol without getting into all the dangers. Agreed. Too much Fantastic. of a good thing is a bad thing. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to go 
dinner for my daughter. <laughs> Edward, well, we want to give a huge thank you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. So I think we all learned a lot. Um, I love reading sure. your book. Uh, can I ask just one final? Is there another book? I know you just published one last month, but do you have another one yeah, in the works at all? I have, I have lots of ones. In the, lots of maybes? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm in the post, post-project post phase of not knowing what I'm going to work on next. Right. I have a million different ideas. So yeah, I want to hear what your agent has to say about your next one. Yeah. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. Not popping. Well, now I know to write it at 0.08. So yeah. There you go. Exactly. There you go. That's a sweet spot. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. Drunk, how we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization. Make sure to grab a copy when, as soon as you can. Loved reading it. Edward, thank you so much and look forward to chatting. Thanks, with you thank you, Edward. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you for listening as well. You can help my podcast grow by sharing my podcast with family and friends and subscribe on whichever platform from where you're listening. Also, check out my Instagram at beergotmehere for beer photos and future beer reviews. For more information on Rolling Hops Beer Tours, their website and a link to all their media is in the episode description. We will see you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.